And so he gets up on the stage, he's wearing his traditional kimono, let's try and picture it, and one of our classmates is chosen to go up onto stage and interview this Japanese theatre performer. And so she gets up, she introduces herself in Japanese, and then she asks a question, and he's just standing there like this. Staring off into the middle distance as if she doesn't exist. And then suddenly she yelps, jumps off the stage, and kicks off her shoes. She realised suddenly that she had been wearing her shoes on his theatre stage. And you might think, yeah, big deal. That's not a problem, right? Just ease up. But for him, that was actually deeply offensive. So much that, that he had to say, I'm not answering your questions, actually, until you respect the space that I'm in. And that moment has always stuck in my mind. And so back to the important question. If you go to someone's house, should you take your shoes off or not? Now, the easy thing to do is just to ask. <laughs> and if you come to our house, just to clear it up so you don't need to feel nervous, it's okay to keep your shoes on when you come to our place. But isn't it interesting? Like, have you noticed that like, it's quite a stark sort of cultural difference, um, sometimes between Eastern or Western culture, sometimes just between household cultures? What's the reason behind that? Why is there such a stark cultural difference in that sense? Because actually, all of our actions and our customs and our habits and our routines do have reasons behind them, right? There is an answer to that question. Of why is it that we do things this way and not that way? Well, for some cultures or some households, you must take off your shoes. Why? Because the outside world is dirty and the inside world, the world of the house, is clean. Right? And so even if your shoes are not caked in mud... Like they're actually new shoes, they're like ASICs fresh out of the box or something. Still, take them off at the door because the outside world is dirty and the inside world is clean. That's the assumption, the belief that sits behind the action or the routine. You following me on that? For other households or other cultures, no big deal. Like keep your shoes on even if they've got a bit of mud on them. Come on inside. Why? Because the outside world is dirty and so is my house. <laughs> In fact, we fall into to that category. We're in the kind of sloppy person camp. And so you come to our place, leave your shoes on, no big problem. Just don't walk on the carpet with mud if you can help it. Right? Now, what's behind this is the idea that in our actions, our routines, our habits, there, is, there are reasons behind the things that we do. Even if we don't know them, even if they're subconscious, there are reasons. And as we come now to the next part of Titus, in Titus chapter 2, we see some of the reasons that sit behind Christian behaviour. Because you might have, known some, uh, might have noticed something interesting as we've been going through Titus. Through most of Paul's letters, he begins with doctrine, he begins with the why, and then he moves to action. Have you noticed that? Like Ephesians, chapters 1, 2, 3 is all doctrine, and then chapters 4, 5, 6 is pretty much all practice. Uh, many of his other letters are the same. But here in Titus, it's flipped. So far through the book of Titus, we've been hearing, here are all the things that God wants Christians to do, right? So be self-controlled. Don't slander. Silence false teachers. Submit to your boss, right? Here are the practical things that God wants Christians to do. But now we come to the reason why. We finally get to the truths behind these actions, 
And the question is, what beliefs and truths set the foundation for the Christian life? And here's why this passage is so important. Um, you might be someone who, uh, a Christian or not, who's sitting here this morning and you just wonder, why is it that Christians live the way that they do? Right? Like, ideally. Why is it that Christians live the way that they do? They do some odd things, some things that put them out of step with others, some things that the world says is, is really, really wrong and in fact sometimes offensive. So why don't they just loosen up? Why don't they just get with the times? Or you might be someone who's here this morning, maybe you are a Christian, and you've been struggling to obey the things that we've been seeing in Titus. Like you've been tracking through with us, but you're just going, this is, this is too hard. Um, if I start, I'm going to fail. Or maybe you have started and you know that you're failing. Now, if you sit in either of those categories, and this passage is specifically for you, because we're getting at the why, we're getting at the truth behind why Christians do and how Christians do what it is that they do. And this is what we're going to see in the passage. God's grace changes everything. God's grace changes everything. It does as a matter of fact, but it also must change everything. God's grace changes everything. And when we set our lives in orbit around that truth, then the Christian life doesn't just make sense. It becomes good news. You're going to see that. How about we pray? and We'll jump into the text together. Lord, we humbly ask that you would open our eyes and our ears and our minds and our hearts to the truth of your word, that we might see wonderful things in your scriptures this morning. We ask this for the sake of our own souls and lives, but most of all for the glory of your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Open up to Titus chapter 2, if you haven't already. Uh, and I just want to kind of show you how this passage hangs together, because you may have noticed that when Kim was reading, but this is dense, like Woolworths, mud cake, dense. And, and I want to, like, it's, it's one sentence. Thankfully, Paul has given us a keyword to help us organize our thoughts. It's repeated twice in the passage. Take a look. It's there in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation and onwards. And then in verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. It's that word appear is the organising word of this passage. And, and the claim here is that all of us, Christian or not, actually live between two appearances of God's grace in Christ. First, one that occurred 2,000 odd years ago when he came to earth, incarnated, Right, The God who existed before all time came to earth in Jesus Christ. 2,000 years ago, there's the first appearance of God's grace. But he's coming back, the second appearance of God's grace. And we now live between those two. And for someone who is in Christ, then uh, we have actually these two incredible outpourings of God's grace, past and future, that overflow into the present. And that radically reorients our lives. It radically reorients our whole sense of existence. That's why we can say that God's grace changes everything. Now, how does that happen? Verse 11, first thing. 
Here we see the first appearing of God's grace in Christ. Read this with me. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. Now, in case it's hard to see there, this is talking about Jesus coming to earth. It doesn't use the word Jesus, doesn't use the word Christ, doesn't use the word incarnation, but it's very clearly in view. The grace of God has appeared, right? It might remind us actually of John's words in his gospel, John chapter 1. I'll put these on the screen for you. John 1, 14 to 16, the word that is Jesus, Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of what? Grace and truth. And then if we skip down to verse 16, for from his fullness, Jesus' fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. When the eternal word dwells among us, appears among us, he brings grace. So this is the first appearance of Christ bringing grace to the world. Now, of course, we shouldn't think that God only starts being gracious when Jesus comes to earth, right? Like that's obviously false. Uh, God has always been gracious. History is full of examples. In fact, you open up your Bible, you get to page one, and you see God graciously creating people. He doesn't need to, he has no lack, but he graciously gives us life. Grace on page one. And then you turn over the page, you find that Adam and Eve sin, they rebel against this God, and he graciously clothes them and promises to enact a plan to save them and us from our sin. Right there in chapter three, God has been gracious from the very beginning. But when Jesus comes, grace appears in a new way. It's a bit like when the sun rises, perhaps. See, the sun's always there, right? We can only see it half the time, but it's always there. And for the sake of the babies among us who don't yet have object permanence, the sun actually exists at night. You can't see it, but it's there. However, when the sun begins to rise, you, you actually see it before the light comes, right? So you, you look at a picture like this, and you imagine the sun's below the horizon. You actually see it in the color of the sky, where the sky goes from black to to blue, to purple, to orange, to yellow. And then finally, the sun begins to peek over the horizon and the rays shoot forth. Now, there's a corollary there with, with how God has enacted grace across the Old Testament, across all of human history. We may not have seen the, the full light, the sunrise of God's grace until Christ came. But beforehand, you can see the colors of it in the sky the colours that progressively get more and more grace-like as they approach the coming of Christ. And then he comes to earth and boom, you know, the, the sunrise is here. The light shines. We were just singing that before. Oh, behold, uh, come behold the wondrous mystery, uh, the dawning of the King. There he is, the light in the darkness. And this appearance, this shining of God's grace does two things for us. Remember, the appearance of Christ in the past, the return of Christ in the future, pulling into the present, doing something for us now. What is it that this grace of God does? First, in verse 11, it brings salvation for all people. Now, 
this cuts to the heart of what grace really is. And I've got a picture here of a robber stealing a TV. Imagine if someone broke into your house and stole your TV. What would be a gracious response to them? You might say, oh, well, you know, let them go. Uh, don't, don't require them to go to jail or something like that. But this man, if he steals your TV, he deserves to go to jail, right? Legally, he does. And he owes you something. He owes you your TV. He's got to give it back. Now, grace is saying, not only am I going to say, you keep the TV and you're not going to jail, it's taking your car keys and giving it to the bloke as well. It's preposterous, isn't it? But that's grace. It's, it's actually a good definition of grace is, is God's kindness to the ill-deserving. It's not just giving us, you know, um, it's not just giving us what we don't deserve. It's actually giving us the opposite of what we deserve. Instead of judgment, we receive, as this verse puts it, salvation, the very opposite of what we deserve because like this man stealing a TV, we have all taken the life that God has given us and used it to our own ends with no respect for him. Right? All of us, myself included. The Bible calls that sin. When we choose in our own hearts to love him above, or sorry, to love ourselves above him, to love ourselves above others, to love others in a way that he hasn't prescribed for us to love them, a way that we think is better, that's sin. And we deserve God's judgment. But God's grace is that he gives us the opposite of what we deserve. Instead of judgment, he sends his son. And his son dies on the cross, the perfect son of God, taking our sin upon himself, taking the judgment and wrath of God that we deserve so that we might go free. That's grace. And this grace brings salvation for all people. Now, don't mishear that. There is a teaching that um, some believe, even some so-called churches here on the coast believe. It's called universalism. It's the idea that in the end, God is going to actually bring every single person that's ever existed into heaven to be with him. Right? In the end, everyone will be saved. It's not what the Bible teaches. And that's not what this verse is teaching. Uh, the better way of interpreting this verse is, is, it's a plural actually, and so it's salvation to all peoples is the better way to take this. And part of the evidence for that is, if you look at the beginning of chapter 2, remember what we've seen the last couple of weeks? Who has Paul been talking about? He's been talking about older men, younger men, older women, younger women, pastors, masters, slaves, different like classes of people, Right? The older, the younger, male, female, different occupations, different statuses in life. And then as soon as he moves on from talking about these different classes of people, he says, for, so linking it, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all peoples. Right? There's a link there. He's saying all kinds of people can be saved by God's grace. This isn't saying everyone will be saved. This is saying no matter your walk of life, no matter your status in life, whatever your gender, Whatever you've done, wherever you're from, whatever your job, whether you're single, married, kids, not kids, right? Whether you've just been born or you're dying day, the opportunity for salvation is there for you in Christ. He came to bring grace to all kinds of people. It's the breadth of grace there. 
the scope of grace. And the question is, are you included in that? Are you part of the peoples that have experienced the grace of Christ? Have you put your trust in him alone to save you, taking your sin, taking your punishment, because there's no other way to be saved? Are you included in those peoples for whom Christ came? That's the first thing that comes from God's grace appearing. It brings salvation. And then the second, verse 12, take a look at this. And it actually continues from kind of the start of the sentence. God's grace has appeared, training us. Kids, you hear that? Training us. <laughs> you can do some exercise, move about if you want. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. Now, the order here is important. First, God's grace saves us. And second, God's grace trains us. It has to be put in that order, not the other way around. It's not as though God trains us to become better, more godly people so that we can be saved. He saves us first and then begins to train us. But if God's grace saves us, then we should expect his grace to train us. The two actually do go together. God's grace does both things here. It both saves and trains. Another way of putting this is that God loves us so much that he does accept us just as we are through the sacrifice of his son. Right? He accepts us just as we are no matter what we've done. But he doesn't intend to leave us just as we are. He intends to grow us. He intends to train us. And the word train here is an interesting one, right? Now, the original word in Greek uh, sounds very much like the word for child. Uh, if you're the sort of person that loves language, the word for child is pais or paidos, and the word for uh, train is paiduo. So it's, it's basically like child put into a verb. <laughs> I'm going to raise this child is maybe a way of putting it. Uh, I'm going to train a child. And we all know that kids need training, right? Me and Sky will discover that once we have kids. Kids need training. Like every time I go over to the Jenners lately, um, and I won't embarrass them too much, but um, Eden wants to show that she's been doing her potty training really well. <laughs> and she wants to show me and Sky. And we're like, that's fine. Thank you. Um, we believe you. We're doing a great job. <laughs> Keep it up. <laughs> the kids, like from their, their birth, need training, right? They can't do things for themselves, they need to be taught. Uh, the only thing that kids know how to do for themselves is the thing you don't want them to do. And so kids need to be trained as they grow. Uh, here are the right things to say no to, and here are the right things to say yes to. And that's exactly what we see here in this passage. This is the kind of training that God's grace does. Look again at verse 12 with me. And uh, we are actually going to camp out here for a while. Most of the rest of the sermon, we're going to spend really just on this, this question of how does God's grace train us? It's key for us to understand. And first, you can see there in verse 12, God's grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Uh, if you've got an NIV translation, it might say something like, God's grace trains us to say no to sin. Nice simple language there. To, to say no or even renounce is quite, it's, it's a great word because it's so strong, right? It's like the alcoholic renouncing their drinking habit. They're saying, I'm done with it. I'm finished with it. This is what the grace of God trains us to do. And you might notice that sin is kind of unpacked in two parts here. Trains us to renounce ungodliness and 
worldly passions. They're saying two slightly different things that, that both unpack part of what sin is. The first is in our actions, ungodliness, ungodly things. And we've seen plenty of examples of that across Titus so far. But the second, interestingly, has to do with our desires. Worldly passions. Passions, desires for worldly things. Now, what's the connection between those two? Between our desires and our actions. Come over with me to James chapter 1, verse 13 and 15. It's just a couple of books over in your Bible. So go right past Hebrews and then you'll reach James. We'll just look at chapter 1, verse 13 to 15. All right, it says this. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. He himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin and sin when it is full grown, brings forth death. See, sin begins in the heart. It begins with our desires. Think about Adam and Eve in the garden, right? Um, they see the fruit, the fruit that God has said, do not eat of this. And they, they see it, they, they notice that it's three things, right? Pleasing, a delight to the eyes, uh, it's good for food, and that it would make them wise like God. Those three things, they see it, they desire it, they're captured by it, and so they take it and eat it. And the result is death. Desire, if not rerouted, desire for sin, desire for worldly things, desire for the things that God does not want us to have, if not rerouted, inevitably <coughs> leads to sin. And sin inevitably leads to death. That's what we see written in human history, and that's what we see written here in James. So our desires are really powerful things. They are really powerful things. Flip back to Titus with me, and as you do, just listen to this, this little account here from the, the, the great theologian, Augustine. Uh, we've been looking at him in our Equip class. Uh, he has written something like 100 different books a couple of those have been absolutely fundamental for Western philosophy and Christian thinking for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. He preached something like 500 sermons, a real superstar of Christian history. But before he was a Christian, he suffered immensely with sin. He struggled with lust in particular. So when he was young, he took a mistress, got her pregnant really quickly, uh, had a kid, uh, and then as time went on, he went and he was going to marry someone else, but didn't want to wait for her. And so he went and he started sleeping around. This dude really struggled with lust. Listen to how he talks about it, sort of as he reflects after the fact. He says, I exhausted myself in depravity, intent on withdrawing still further from you. So he's talking to God here after the fact. I loved my own way, not yours. But it was a truant's freedom that I loved. He loved that sense of freedom he got from doing his own thing his own way. Right? That, that's not just saying that he, he was just going about doing stuff. No, it has to do with love. What is it that we love? What is it that we desire? What is it that we ultimately want? And in fact, he, he remembers praying a prayer during this time while he was sinning. And here's what his prayer sounded like. He said, give me chastity, God. Give me self-control. But not yet. 
wonder if you've ever prayed something like that. <laughs> For I was afraid that you would answer my prayer in at once and cure me too soon of the disease of lust. Desires are powerful. They control and compel us. Even as he prayed for God's help, he still wanted to keep clinging to his sin. He wanted that. But as he noted in the previous quote, it was a truance freedom. It wasn't true freedom. It actually kept him in slavery. And so one of the things we see here is that our sinful actions are in fact sustained and caused by sinful desires. Right? They're actually sort of the power behind our actions, if you want. Now, when Augustine became a Christian, everything changed and God began to train him, right? Not only saved, but trained. And so these sinful desires for lust actually were exchanged for new desires in his life. For him, it happened almost all at once. It was quite miraculous. Uh, For some of us, it happens more over time. But the picture here is that our desires are so powerful and formative in our life. And therefore, we need something like what Augustine experienced. Something that actually changes us from the inside out. Not just our actions, but our beliefs and our desires. Uh, Unless God does something with our desires, in other words, we're without hope. It's like going to a a, a surgeon and finding out you've got a brain tumour, and then the the surgeon gives you Panadol. This will fix up your headaches. That'll help. The the root of the problem is still untreated. You're going to die. Same thing here. And so God trains us to both renounce sinful actions as well as renounce worldly desires, right? That's worth saying the desire itself is not sin, to desire something that's against God. That happens sometimes. We get tempted. The temptation itself is not sin. But leaving it, you know, without, without rerouting it, without changing its direction inevitably leads to sin. That's why God has to change our desires. So we say no. He trains us to say no to sin. But he also trains us to say yes to godliness. Look at these three three phrases here in verse 12. He trains us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Now, we've already seen these words in Titus so far. We've seen self-control in particular a whole lot of times, so I won't labor the point. But I think the meaning here is that the old desires and actions that we used to have as as a sinner become replaced by new ones, new desires, new actions, new way of life. And this is like, it's chucking a Yui, right? Sometimes Rob says that and he sounds super Australian. I can pull it off though, right? He's chucking a Yui, a 180. I'm no longer going this way, I'm going this way instead. And I wonder if, like, we're looking at this, we're talking about new desires and we're talking about new actions and new way of life and living self-controlled, godly, upright, and you're going, how on earth can someone actually do that? Sounds like you, or God's, asking for perfection, Dan. How on earth could this happen? How can we pull it off? Well, remember, who's doing the training here? God. God's grace trains us to renounce sin and live a godly life in Christ Jesus. This is a work that actually begins and is sustained and and finishes by God's hand, not our own. Which means we can actually be optimistic about change, right? Christians of all people (laughs) need to be optimistic about the hope of changing. 
And maybe you've been struggling with a sin in your life for a long time. And, and you know, that's pretty common, actually. Um, maybe you've become quite defeatist about it. Like, there's no way this will change. I'm just stuck like this. I'm such a huge disappointment to God. I'm a lost cause. If that's you, then what you're missing is that God is actually far more committed to changing and growing you than you could ever be. And for that matter, than I could ever be as your pastor. But I keep stuffing up and it's taking really long and God must be really disappointed with... Yeah, well, that's the point of grace. (laughs) He changes us from where we are right now. He knows our frame and he forgives us through Christ. That's salvation. And then he trains us. Just a note, though, in talking about this being God's work, uh, some people have the idea that this means we actually do nothing. right? God lifts all the, the heavy stuff, and I just sit here as kind of like, a, like an amorphous lump of Play-Doh that gets kind of pushed and molded and, and that kind of thing. Um, that's not how Scripture pictures this dynamic. Okay, uh, Come with me to Philippians chapter 2. We'll see in verse 12 to 13. Uh, this isn't how Scripture pictures this at all. It's good hearing Bibles flick, by the way. That's really good. I know it comes up on the screen, and that's, that's for some of you who don't have Bibles, but I love hearing that, that you're looking this up. Philippians 2, 12 to 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, says Paul, here's the key bit, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Literally, outwork it. Bring it from the inside to the outside. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, what's this saying? It's saying that on our part, we obey. On our part, we strive to do the things that God has commanded us to do, right? And so, for example, uh, we read about God's will in Scripture, and we pray and we gather together with like-minded Christians. Um, This is called the ordinary means of grace. That is the the means by which God has ordained to work through his people and grow them. So Bible, prayer, church, big three, right? We do those things, and we strive to put his word into practice as we learn to follow Jesus. We do that. We do our best at it. We get support for it. We pray hard. We read more. We attend with more fervor. Uh, We keep going. But as we do, we find, in fact, that it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do you see how both things are here in this verse? Um, to, To put it another way, he trains, but we renounce. He trains, but we live a godly life in Christ Jesus, to pick up the language of Titus. He works as we work. This is the dynamic by which God grows us. And so it's far less just let go and let God. You know, I'll let him do the work and I'll just be this lump, right? It's less that and it's more trust God and get going. And as you go, find that in fact he is empowering you to obey him and grow, both in our actions and our desires, grace working in us. And that actually means we can be optimistic about growth because as we go, God will do that. And so we're active in pursuing it. You're with me on this? This is so key to understand. Not let go and let God. Trust God and get going. One more thing to see here, though, back over in Titus chapter 2. Since God's grace trains us, 
if someone isn't actually growing over time, they're not growing to say, increasingly say no to sin and yes to godliness, if someone isn't being trained, in other words, then we've got to ask, have they in fact experienced God's saving grace at all? You understand why? Because God's grace has appeared to do two things. Both save and train. Christ is two things. Both saviour and Lord. Two sides of the same coin. And we see that actually in verse 14 here in Titus chapter 2. Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You see those two sides there? Redeem us, save us, as well as become people who are his own possession, zealous for good works. Two sides of the same coin. In fact, when you dig a little deeper into this word redeem, it's, it's a slightly technical word. I know that sometimes we use this just as sort of a, a synonym for salvation, but there is something in view when we hear the word redeem in the Bible. The word redeem has to do with, with freeing from slavery. It has to do with freeing from an oppressive power. So, for example, uh, when, when God's people, the Israelites, are in Egypt, God redeems them. He brings them out from the oppression of the Egyptians through the, the, uh, the Dead Sea and, and all of that. And then when his people are in exile in Babylon, he redeems them. He brings them back home. He brings them out of the Babylonian foreign power. And he frees them to be his people again. Now, in both cases, they actually used their freedom they sort of squandered it in order to go back into sin and idolatry, right? But God's action was to redeem. And it's not just to save from guilt in that case. Now, often we talk about God's salvation as salvation from guilt, and it is. He saves us from the penalty of sin, but he also saves us from the power of sin. Both the penalty and the power. Jesus came to free us from sin's power. And yes, we won't experience that fully in this life. God knows that we will not reach perfection here and now. We will keep struggling with sin until our dying day. He knows that. <laughs> but one sign that we are truly saved, that we have experienced God's saving grace, is that we are being trained. And one sign that we're being trained is that our desires are changing, not just our actions. That's why we see there in verse 14, right at the end, that we become people who are zealous for good works. Zealous for good works. We go from desiring sin to desiring godliness. We go from serving ourselves to serving God. And not just going through the motions with it, but, but notice that word. Zealous. Enthusiastic. I've got a non-Christian friend who, uh, his cousin actually is a pastor uh, down in Victoria somewhere. And... Um, we get talking, he knows that I'm a pastor and we get talking about different things and he never fails to mention to me when he talks about his cousin who's a pastor, he's very proud of. And he'll say something like, oh, you know, he's just, but he's a pastor, but he's not really, you know, like a pastor pastor, you know, like he's chill. He's, he's kind of, he's not full on about religious stuff. He just kind of lets people be people, but he's like, you know, he'll still preach a good message, but, but he doesn't judge you, you know. He's, like, he's just like a normal bloke. 
And maybe you'd love a pastor like that. <laughs> but uh, if someone said that about me, I'd be horrified. I'd be absolutely horrified. Christ does not call us just to be a normal bloke or a normal person. Someone who just doesn't judge others and looks like everyone else, right? And maybe actually that pastor is not completely like that. <laughs> maybe that's just my non-Christian friend's view of him. Uh, but, but he calls us to be zealous. And obviously, religious zealotry can have its problems, as we all know. <laughs> but its absence is no less concerning. Christ calls us to be zealous for good works. And so here is the question, what captures you? What captures your enthusiasm? What do you dream about when you're alone? What do you imagine when you've got time to yourself? What do you go to when you've finally got some freedom? Do you dream about the next holiday? A video game you, you can't wait to play? Work? A relationship? Finally getting to retire? The weekend? The surf? Now, these are all good things. They're things that God has given as gifts to be received when he gives them, right? But here's the sort of person that's being trained by the grace of God. Here they are. Let me give you a portrait. They're becoming less captured by those things and more captured by knowing God and serving him. They're zealous. They're enthusiastic. They dream about what they could do for his kingdom. They can't wait to read their Bibles. They can't be stopped from praying. They organize their whole life around finding opportunities to know Jesus, love his church, and reach the lost. That's the person that's been captured by Jesus. That's the person who's zealous for good works. That's the person who's being trained by God's grace. Is that the direction you're going in? You might say, I haven't made it. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> right? But is that the direction that you're going in? Is there signs that God is in fact training you? Because if not, you've got to look further back in the logic and ask, have I actually been saved by God's grace at all? If I'm not being trained, then I'm probably not having been saved. Because Jesus didn't just die to make converts, to give people a ticket to heaven. He died to make disciples. He died to make followers. People who belong to him, people who are his own possession, people who have been redeemed from the power of sin. That's what God's grace trains us to be. Which brings us to verse 13, where we see that come full circle. He trains us as we are waiting. Waiting. What are you waiting for? He trains us as we're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And just a note, I think Rob said this last week, here's a claim to Jesus being divine. Our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, right? So our God is coming back. And like I said, um, we live between two appearings. The first appearing of God's grace in Christ's incarnation and, and death and resurrection. And the second appearing when he returns. As Hebrews 9 puts it, uh, first he appeared once for all to put away sin by his sacrifice. That was his first appearing. And then Hebrews 9.28 puts it this way. Having been offered once to bear the sins of many, there's the first appearing, 
he will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Have you ever heard of this play, the play Waiting for Godot? Put your hand up if you've heard of this play. I read this, I think, back in high school. Yeah, um, It's a play where nothing happens. It's like Seinfeld, but, but in play form, uh, literally. Um, so what happens is there's a couple of characters, and they're waiting for someone named Godot who um, they've never met, and they're not sure if he's actually going to turn up, but they, they just kind of wait around for him. All right? And over the two-and-a-half-hour run runtime of this play, they kind of just kill time. They talk to some passers-by, they meet some interesting people, they have some interesting philosophical observations, and then it just fades to black, and that's the end of the play. Sort of thing probably you'd be keen for, Ross. Make sure you get rush tickets for that one. <laughs> I'm glad you're here this morning. It means I could make that joke. <laughs> now, one obvious interpretation of the play is that the men are waiting for God. Oh, I get it, <laughs> right? God, oh. Um, and he's never going to arrive. They've never met him. They don't know if he's coming. And in fact, he doesn't come. It just fades to black. But that's not what Scripture says. Scripture tells us that as surely as Christ first came and dealt with sin, he's coming back to save those who are eagerly expecting his return. As sure as the sun is going to rise tomorrow, Jesus is coming back. And because that's the reality, Christians don't just kill time until he comes back. We don't just sort of chat to people and, and kind of wait around and then boom, you know, Jesus is here, great. No, we live expectantly, right? Those who are eagerly waiting for him. There's a passage some of you guys are going to dig into in growth groups that talks about us loving his return, right? We're people that are captured by this fact that Jesus is coming back. And so we don't get as hooked on how our career is going, whether we're married or not, whether we have kids or not, what the surf is like this weekend, etc., 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 etc. Again, good things, gifts from God, if he gives them. But they're secondary things to the person who's eagerly waiting Christ's return because eternity is primary. Jesus is primary. Again, it comes back to what we desire and what we're zealous for. And part of God's gracious work in our life is to help us wait expectantly. He lifts our eyes to Christ's return and trains us to shape our lives around it, around this second appearing, just as much as we do the first. So, let's bring this back to where we began. Everyone's actions have something to do with their beliefs, right? We take off our shoes at the door or not for one reason or another. So why do Christians live the way that they do? Why is it that a sincere follower of Jesus will look very different to the people around them in the world? Because of the reality of God's grace. God's grace changes everything. The grace that saves us. The grace that trains us to renounce sin in its actions and its desires. The grace that trains us to begin living a godly life in Christ Jesus. The grace that helps us wait eagerly for Christ's return. God's grace changes everything. It does as a matter of fact in salvation, but it must, as a matter of fact, in training us. 
God's grace changes everything. And if you're looking at the Christian life and thinking, that's impossible, can't do it, no way. What is asking me to give up? Too much. Can't do it. Then here's what you need to hear. You aren't a lost cause. God can save you. God can train you. God can save you. God can train you. The Christian life begins with grace, continues grace with grace, and finishes with grace, and that's all God's work, his kindness to ill-deserving people like you and me. And so the key is to look back and to look forward, right? Look back at God's great outpouring of grace in the past at the cross. Look forward to his great outpouring of grace on those who believe now when Christ returns. Look back and look forward. And just a quote to finish on here by John Stott. We live between two windows in the school of grace. And I like that metaphor, the school, the training of grace. Through the western window, a solemn light streams from Mount Calvary, from the cross. Through the eastern window shines the light of sunrising, the herald of a brighter day in Christ's return. Thus, the school of grace, where we now live in the training of grace, is well lighted. But we cannot afford to do without the light from either the west or the east. God's grace changes everything. So look to what he has done in the past through Christ. Look to what he is yet to do in the future through Christ. And then look to see how he holds you, saves you, and trains you in the present. And he is far more committed to that than you will ever be. Shape your life and your desires and your actions around these truths. Turn to Christ afresh and trust him. And in so doing, find all you need to become the person that God saved you to be. Let's pray. Lord, for those among us this morning who don't yet know the saving grace of Christ, I pray and we pray together for them now. Um, bring them to know Jesus and see his beauty and see that he is their hope just as he is ours. Bring them, Lord, like us, to see their sin, but see your grace. For those of us this morning, Lord, who continue to struggle on, as all Christians do, we help us lift our eyes to your grace and believe. Help us trust you and get going. Help us continue to put our shoulders to, to this work of obeying you, knowing that, in fact, you were the one who graciously works in us. And Lord, help us to eagerly await your return. In Jesus' name, amen.